Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Eugenio Duarte. I hope you enjoy the interview you're about to listen to. If you do, or if you have ideas... Hi, this is Eugenio Duarte. I hope you enjoy the interview you're about to listen to. If you do, or if you have ideas for books you'd like to hear about on the show, let me know. Go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on contact to send me a message. And now on with the interview. Hello, everybody. This is Eugenio Duarte in New York, your host for New Books in Psychology. And today, my guest is Patricia Gerovisi, the author of the recently published book, Transgender Psychoanalysis, a Lacanian Perspective on Sexual Difference. And I'd like to introduce my guest. Patricia Gerovisi is a psychoanalyst and analytic supervisor. She's co-founder and director of the Philadelphia Lacan Group, an associate faculty psychoanalytic studies minor at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also an honorary member at IPTAR, the Institute for Psychoanalytic Training and Research in New York City, and a member at APRECU, Psychoanalytic Association in New York. Her prior books include The Puerto Rican Syndrome, as well as Please Select Your Gender, From the Invention of Hysteria to the Democratizing of Transgenderism, and she's also published two edited collections, both with Manya Steinkohler, entitled Lacan on Madness, Madness, Yes, You Can't, and Lacan, Psychoanalysis, and Comedy. Welcome, Patricia. Thank you, Kenya. Thank you for this kind introduction. I'm very happy to have the opportunity to have this conversation with you. And, and I'm really happy to be able to talk to you. One of the things that I want to know first is how... How did you get involved in working with transgender people? It has to do with the, the wonderful opportunity we are granted as clinicians. I always say that uh, in the office I happen to have a couch because I work as a psychoanalyst. And for me that couch works like a window. And through that window, like a passenger on a train, we can see was happening outside, and we see it in motion at times. At times, it comes to a stop, and we can have a better look. But it gives us a, a very privileged viewpoint onto what's happening outside in society. And I find myself often surprised by seeing through this window things about which I will read in the newspaper maybe three, five years later. And that's how I encounter what I call the transgender democratizing, the, tra- the democratizing of the transgender experience, uh, which is brought to me by the, what the patients talk on the couch, by the window. So how did you just by chance find yourself uh, seeing a lot of patients who identified as transgender? Or is this something that you've actively decided to pursue and become interested in and make a focus of your work? I happen to have 
two types of patients, I may say. I had patients who identify as trans, but I also happen to have patients who were not identifying as trans, but were bringing questions about sexual identity. Uh, they happen to be posing questions. They were mostly uh, identified as uh, what we may call today C's. This means uh, people who identify with the gender they were assigned as birth, mostly identifying as women, who were presenting questions about sexual identity. And they were asking, uh, am I straight or bisexual? Mm. And I was wondering about this question. Uh, what was it expressing? Um, they were mostly college-educated patients in this case. And I was wondering if this kind of uh, questioning was perhaps influenced by reading certain type of feminist, post-feminist literature, uh, perhaps the works of uh, the philosopher Judith Butler, who questioned the, the idea of gender as a given. And, uh, and I contrasted this experience of people who question their gender, and, and, and that question brought them a lot of suffering, with people whose suffering was centered about a, an answer about gender. They knew, for instance, that they identify from a very early age, let's say somebody who was assigned as female may have felt like a boy, and knew that mm, they identify as a boy, besides being uh, identified as society, as female, and for them, the, the suffering was caused by the certainty of the answer. And I've contrasted these two very different experiences. And that led me to uh, read more and explore more the issue about what did a trend, the transgender experience uh, could teach us in general about uh, what we may call widely uh, gender trouble. Hmm. I, I feel like before we go further, I want to define transgender, what exactly does that word mean? Often, a transgender is a, a word that is used as an, an umbrella definition, and people prefer to cut it and just say trans. It's often a word that people use to describe uh, when they don't feel that they identify with the gender they were assigned at birth, that there is at times a discrepancy between what we may call a biological reality, sex, and their inner sense of gender. But what the clinic have taught me is that it's much more complicated than that and very illuminated for clinical issues. That's one of the, the interesting uh, discoveries, uh, I feel, uh, yeah, yeah, that the clinic had taught me because I, I believe that in the, the patients and working with uh, analytically oriented and alerted ears allows you to learn and discover many things. And this is one of the, the, the things I, I learned through working with patients who identify as trans who may open a sort of certainty that for some people, a gender could be something they don't question. They, they fill out a questionnaire uh, without any hesitation, or they may use a public restroom without thinking twice about which door to choose. Those people who may have some trouble with these issues can have the potential to, to teach us very interesting things and very helpful things uh, for the clinical practice that are somehow universal. Yes. No, I, I, I'm... I want to hear more about that. What what you think that the transgender experience can teach all of us about about gender and about sex? 
uh, that in a way, say the the idea that the gender travel of transgender identified people is in a way not specific to the transgender experience, but is a general travel that in order to assume a gender to say, am I a man, I am a woman or anything else in between or none of the above altogether uh, implies a process of embodiment that we need to assume a gender position that uh, we, even before we are born, when people may know they're pregnant and may have a sonogram to determine the gender of the child yet to be born, that uh, it is a process that implies a lot of psychic elaboration and many stages in assuming a body. And at times, assuming a body with a specific gender may not correspond to what society assigns. And for instance, we could uh, contrast the, the experience of uh, transgender individuals with that of people who today we call intersex and in the past we would call hermaphrodite, wow. whose uh, physical structure, the anatomical structures cannot clearly determine whether or not we can call this baby male or female. We can see how society, and this is one of the, the interesting things that a philosopher like Judith Butler has taught us, and uh, and also from uh, biology, that recent studies in, in medical anatomy and biology uh, has taught us, and all the research done in intersex is like Anne Fausto Sterling could be one example of, of these uh, the revelations that, in fact, to talk about two genders, this binary, is... Uh, an oversimplification mm-hmm. that we should at least talk about five genders and and that uh, what we need to, to keep in mind is that whenever we, we talk about the gender is not such a simple thing that what uh, for people who are uh, maybe not given a second of thought to when I was mentioning before a choice of a public restroom the experience of those who may pause and, and have to make a decision uh, says something about the long, complex process of embodiment that could challenge any sort of essentialism in believing that there is uh, this uh, an anatomic destiny. That yes. Well, I I think then that one of the things that you're t- tell me if this sounds like a fair reading of of your ideas in your book, but it sounds like what you're doing is sort of turning our notions of 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 let's say nor- normative gender presentations um, and of transgender people and, and sort of inverting our ideas about them because it sounds to me like what you might be suggesting is that the transgender experience teaches us that those of us who identify with our biological sex and proceed through life without much gender troubles, quote unquote, are actually that that taken for granted process is a lot more complex than it seems and that perhaps there might even be, I don't know if you would go so far as agreeing with this, but there might actually be something kind of unnatural and forced about the way that we do conventional gender, the way that we sort of force ourselves to choose a certain gender and a certain sexual object. Am am I going too far in interpreting your ideas? I agree absolutely with what you're saying. That's something that uh, Sigmund Freud noticed that. uh, Why is it that uh, he noticed that the first assumption we make upon 
running on the street, we see a stranger on the street, that the first thing we try to discriminate is male or female. Why do we need to do that? Because in another text, elsewhere in his words, he mentions that if uh, someone from a different planet was to land on Earth and, and take a look, he would wonder why do we make such a big deal about differences that are not so marked that in a way between male and female the differences are not as measured as society constructs them and and that's what uh, also the work of Judy Butler or Anfasto Sterling has taught us is uh, today we know after all the contributions of uh, the feminism of the 60s, 70s that gender is a social construction but sex as a biological uh, truth is also socially constructed. What we call male and female are con- social cultural constructions and, uh, and this uh, uh, idea that object choice or, or gender identification is uh, an, an, a destiny that is marked a one-way highway is an illusion. And, and I think this is one of the, one of the many important lessons that one discovers in the clinical practice working with patients identifying as trans, that they open up uh, the possibility of challenging what you were calling uh, fake normativity, that what we call normal is just a convention, Mm. it's it's a construction, and it changes with time, like fashions in society, in education, what was what is a sort of expected behavior rather than a truth or yes well you know you i i'm glad that you mentioned judith butler because throughout the book i noticed uh her influence on your on your thinking you use the the term gender trouble quite quite a lot in the book so i picked up Mm -hmm. on, on that influence um and i remember in gender trouble she as well questions the idea that sex is biologically determined as well. That, that, and, and our, exactly, that sex, is, exactly. sex is a construction. Yes, that even what we believe is to say the truth of the body, this yeah. uh, immutable strata, is not. Right. Is, uh, that this is something that uh, is also a construction. And, and, and that's what, for instance, uh, from the medical field we learn if we take a look at the research done on intersex that at times are social conventions imposed on the flesh and this is what one possible definition of embodiment that when anybody who uh, assumes a gender position and says i am female or i am male or anything else in between or i'm neither i don't identify with the binary all these options are are social conventions and maybe one indication we could uh, find in, in the social uh, media is, for instance, with Facebook that has a, a, an enormous amount of worldwide uses in, in the billions that, if, for instance, in, for American users, you have 57 options for gender identification. Mm-hmm. So that indicates, and, and, and in, in the United Kingdom, it's, it's over 70. So you could see that uh, what we may call a binary is in the practice, at least for social media users, that is most of us, is obviously no longer as simple as we thought it to be. Right, right. So then, you know, you've written about gender before and the, such as with your book, Please Select Your Gender. So I'm, I'm curious about this book. You, you title it Transgender Psychoanalysis. What are you saying with that title, and what is what is the overarching thesis of this book? 
what I discovered myself is when I wrote uh, Please Select Your Gender, I published that book in 2010. I didn't know then I was going to ride a sort of wave in popular culture, a sort of a tsunami that was going to sweep away the clinical practice and, and that it was going to force psychoanalysis to catch up. Mm. Uh, psychoanalysis has a very bad history of normativization, at least in its most classical uh, impersonation. The psychoanalysis has uh, had a lot of, to quote again Judith Butler, gender trouble. But mm-hmm. maybe if we focus on the idea of trouble in philosophy, the problem, a trouble, is often the beginning of uh, thinking. It's an opportunity to rethink a problem and come up with hypothetical solutions or practical solutions. So in a way, what we see with this uh, tsunami that had captured the, the popular imagination, not a day passes, and this has been, in a way, a challenge for me while I was uh, writing transgender psychoanalysis. I would have my coffee for breakfast, open the New York Times, <laughs> and there I would find every single day one piece of news relating to something connected with the trans experience. Yeah. The game impression I was never going to be able to right. complete the book. I would never catch up. But I think this is important that culture is trying to catch up with something that in a way is exceeding uh, our, our intention to capture. Mm-hmm. And, and I think when I use the title transgender psychoanalysis is because I think that the transgender experience it teaches something about sexuality, that sexuality for human beings, for speaking beings, is trouble and is something that we have to come to terms with and something that is, uh, it requires some psychic elaboration, some uh, effort. And, and I think one, one example of that is that, for instance, uh, animals don't seem to have trouble with sex or sexuality. And, and in a clinical practice, all we hear about is uh, sex trouble, is either too much, not enough, is uh, too soon <coughs> or not soon enough. Or We, we always hear about this uh, discrepancy, this uh, this in that there is something missing that we we don't know of. And I think one, one uh, evidence of that is why do we need to uh, have a sex ed about something that if instinct will rule sexuality, why would we need to be taught what we should know already? Why do you think that is? Because a sexuality for speaking beings implies what we were talking before, this process of embodiment, that there is a sort of psychic process, and, and the transgender experience is a long uh, process of a dealing, coming to terms, uh, losses, mournings, yeah. uh, gains, and there is a short, long process. If you look at the uh, all the writing, all the transgender memoirs, transgender, the, all these uh, testimonies of uh, gender reassignment or uh, gender confirmation, uh, often the metaphors that are used are about travel, journey mm-hmm. that i think we should capture that that there is that assuming a sex body implies a, a long travel with a, at times a lot of luggage mm-hmm. and, and and with many 
passing many frontiers, at times uh, needing certain documentations to cross a, a boundary, at times uh, not being able to pass that boundary. Uh, and I think all these metaphors of, of traveling illustrate this uh, difficulty that it implies passing a series of obstacles uh, and implies a sort of a journey and, and a travesty that it, it, from, we need to go from A to B. It's not a given. So I agree with you that culture is always trying to keep up with what's going on with the transgender experience. But do you, are you saying that psychoanalysis is particularly behind? Absolutely. And, uh, and I think it's, uh, it's about time to catch up. That's why I, I, I challenge psychoanalysis by choosing this title, Transgender Psychoanalysis, because I think that on the other hand, and that was one thing that I discovered doing research for the book, is that the history of psychoanalysis and the history of uh, uh, transgenderism if we choose that word, uh, are very linked. In the very early days of psychoanalysis, uh, pioneers in what would become the clinic of uh, uh, the clinical practice of gender, gender reassignment were extremely linked. They were collaborating. And, and an evidence of that is that the first, one of the first psychoanalytic associations, uh, is, uh, hello? Oh, yes. In the background, yeah. Uh, oh, uh, I can I can hear you now. We, we had a little. We have a little bit of static. Okay. So I, I was saying that uh, look, looking at the history of uh, psychoanalysis, the first, one of the first psychoanalytic uh, Berlin psychoanalytic society had member were like five or six people together was Hirschfeld, uh, who was pioneer sexology. Uh, Patricia, sorry to interrupt yeah. you again. Um, we, need, we need maybe to, to call back and. I do, is before we do that. Is there is there any chance that maybe your your microphone has moved? No. Oh, now I now I think I can hear you a little bit better. Okay. Yeah, now it seems better. Yeah, now now it seems better. Okay. Good. Um, if you want, so, just, so, just proceed and, and we'll cut this out later. Okay, very good. Uh, so we see from the very early days of psychoanalysis a close connection and interrelatedness between the emerging field of psychoanalysis and the then emerging field of sexology, sex reassignment, a, gay activism, and, and I'm referring here to the beginning of the 20th century in Berlin when the psychoanalytic Berlin society was founded. There was only five members. One of them was Max Hirschfeld, who was a pioneer gay rights activist and very influential figure who was warmly welcomed by Freud. He was one of the founders of that society. And, and Freud thought from the very early days of psychoanalysis that a collaboration with the then emerging uh, transgender field was important for the development and well-being of psychoanalysis. Uh, and unhappily, uh, that didn't last too long, even though Hirschfeld was 
welcomed by Freud and he was a guest of honor in the first international psychoanalytic meeting. Uh, he soon left the society because he confronted what unhappily uh, turned to be uh, the reality of the psychoanalytic uh, institutions for many years, uh, which is the objection to his open homosexuality, mm. and uh, which was something that Freud felt it was important that psychoanalysis needed to side with that kind of political activism, that the future of psychoanalysis depended on that. So when I say transgender psychoanalysis, is going back to this uh, complex history and maybe go back to this protected collaboration that was uh, uh, cut short in the early days of psychoanalysis, but much needed today. Yeah, and you, you address that for, in the book, this this ignored but important link between sexology and psychoanalysis. What in particular do you think psychoanalysis needs to learn from sexology? It needs to learn uh, that sexuality is not a given for many years, if we think, uh, say, between the 20s and maybe until the 80s, 90s. For instance, uh, this, I think it was a sort of distortion that if you read uh, text like even Freud's early text on sexuality, his uh, three essays on the theory of sexuality that owes a lot to what was then the emerging field of sexology. He quotes widely the sexologists of his time uh, that, on the other hand, practitioners thought that, for instance, uh, homosexuality was a sign of abnormality. When Freud says that uh, to make an homosexual or heterosexual object choice is equally contingent and they are both equally problematic and uh, equally unaccountable, that psychoanalysis still needs to figure out why do we choose to... Um, uh, feel attracted to somebody maybe of the same gender or the other. And I think the contribution of sexology uh, today and of the transgender studies today is that what we call male and female is also something that needs to be questioned and open up for discussion and could allow us to be better practitioners. I think uh, psychoanalysis has a lot to offer in terms of easing psychic suffering and, and in that sense could help uh, somebody who may identify as transgender in the same way that somebody who may identify as transgender could help psychoanalysis uh, at, at the clinical level, at the theoretical level, in, in challenging these um, force uh, normativities and, and something I have been uh, arguing since uh, my previous book, Please Select Your Gender, is that uh, I disagree with the pathologization of uh, the transgender experience. I think uh, there are ways of being. Somebody uh, may identify as transgender as a way of being in the world, as a, the same way that somebody may identify as cisgender or may uh, identify as agender, uh, as ways, different ways of being in the world. They are not necessarily a sign of pathology. But, you know, as a psychoanalyst myself, I, I observe the same thing you are talking about in your book and now, which is that we do have a history of pathologizing certain human experiences. And I, I struggle to understand why we do that, given that our whole mission is to embrace all the complexities and uncertainties of human experience. Do you have any clues as to why psychoanalysts 
have a tendency to, to pathologize transsexual experience? I think it's, a, it's a, an unhappy distortion of, a, I think, individual prejudice. Maybe I could even dare to say that those analysts may have not gone far enough in their own personal analysis mm. if they can hold on to such unsustainable prejudice and that in a way they are a victim of their own limitations because they may make them deaf in the practice, that they may stop hearing, as you're saying, as a clinician, the complexity of uh, the human experience, the complexity of psychic formations, the complexity of metapsychology, that by assuming that one way of being in the world is a without listening to the specific sign of pathology. I was using the example of homosexuality that for many years, for classical psychoanalysis at least, was considered as a sign of pathology. That has been rectified. And I think that still that prejudice has moved on maybe now to those who identify as transgender. And hopefully the same evolution will take place. And this is what I'm I'm arguing for and and uh, I'm trying to, to to talk about and that's why again the title transgender psychoanalysis that there is uh, that that psychoanalysis needs to transgen transcend transition from this uh, silly uh, I think limiting and and in a way anti psychoanalytic position of prejudice onto a more ethical, uh, clinically sound position that uh, in the same way that I think the fundamental rule, and I think it's important that Freud calls it a fundamental rule, which is say whatever comes to mind without censoring yourself, without any prejudice, without thinking that this inconvenient or silly or offensive, this is how psychoanalysis should work, that in a way, frame that, that, that fundamental rule of analytic neutrality also should force the practitioners to abstain from limiting prejudice and, and listen to the uh, unique and, and, uh, and, and very enlightened individual experience of each analyst, analysis and analyst in particular. I think what is very rich in the psychoanalytic practice is that we work case by case. Each one, each case is a, an opportunity for discovery and an opportunity for surprise in a way what the analysis will produce in, in each uh, analysis will be a surprise for us and will be illuminating and it will be a moment of uh, creativity. And I think we should allow for that to happen by abstaining from any prejudice. This might be a good moment to bring into the conversation Jacques, Jacques Lacan, who you seem to really uh, hold as a role model for how to think about the transsexual experience from a psychoanalytic point of view. Um, just to start at the beginning, could you tell us who he, who was Jacques Lacan and why do you what do you like about his way of thinking? Jacques Lacan is a French psychoanalyst who we may say is today the biggest number of psychoanalysts practicing. If we look globally. Brazil, Argentina, France, Italy is the most practiced uh, in terms of uh, numbers. Uh, 
um, direction in psychoanalytic practices, uh, an orientation that allow us maybe to strip off the prejudice we were talking about because one of the many contributions that Lacan brings is to think of the unconscious as like a language. doesn't mean that it is language, but it is like a language, and in that sense is something shared and that everyone uh, is part of. We are all speaking beings. We are spoken about before we are even born, when uh, parents may be thinking about the name for a child. And, and it's something that, in a way, would survive us because even when we are no longer living, there would be a name that could bring us back uh, to life. And, and in this sense, by thinking that the unconscious is this uh, very individual thing, uh, our, our peculiar individual history very contingent, very unique, and at the same time is social. And, and one of the, the other contributions of the what has been called in the American context the French Freud, uh, he was a very close reader of the work of Freud, and, uh, and what he brings uh, back to psychoanalysis is a reading of Freud of the most... Uh, Controversial Freud, we may see the most no no non-normative Freud, uh, and and he brings into the field of sexuality specifically the idea that uh, to be male or female are uh, just identifying with a certain word, uh, identifying with a form of being in the world, with a positioning that does not necessarily uh, need to do with uh, an anatomical overdetermination, and in a way, like the trans experience, that liberates uh, desire from essentialist and normatizing positions, that opens up implicitly new forms of desire that account for what the human experience is, which is very varied, like the 50-some, seven options uh, in Facebook of gender identification, and also we, we haven't talked about, we are talking about a gender identification, which is uh, uh, maybe uh, how do you go to bed as rather than who do you go to bed mm. with, um, which is a, a, a way of uh, talking about object choice. And in that sense, uh, we are uh, also entering a feeling which Lacan also gives contributions by ex expressing the contingency of object choices that have to do with several determinations that are as uh, mobile and as uh, changing, like a language is. A language is always uh, changing, there are new words added to the language, and it's something that uh, we can use creatively, but we don't fully own. Nobody can decide to to add a word to the dictionary. It happens as a mm. community effort, but affects each person individually. Yes. Yeah, language then, I guess, really is a great metaphor because language is also a man-made, a, a, a human creation. Um, it, it's it's not something that comes from nature, but it's something that, that we've created. And I, 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 I want to bring a particular attention to something you talk about in the book, that, which is a distinction that Lacan makes, and I think you alluded to this just now, you know, between um, the actual organs that we possess as humans and organs and the phallus sort of as symbols and metaphors. And 
It seems like mm-hmm. if we think about it that way, then whether or not you have a penis, whether or not you have an agi- a vagina, doesn't no longer really determines whether you're a boy or whether you're a girl. Um, am I reading his idea correctly? Absolutely, absolutely. That that is, is what we were talking before um, about this idea of embodiment. Already there, for instance, we're talking about language. Uh, the English use of uh, the expression, I have a body, we are not bodies, we have them, mm. implies that there is something artificial in the sense that you were, we're not longer talking about strictly nature as a given, but that if we have a body, we need to possess that body, we need to own it. And, and for some people may feel that they have the wrong body or that they need to modify their body. And I think we all modify their bodies. We, we are never uh, fully operating with the body we have as a purely natural given. And, and this is something that somebody like Paul Preciado mentions that uh, at the time of the very televised and very uh, public transition of Caitlyn Jenner, people... Uh, could have been misled to believe that what Clay, Caitlyn Jenner was doing was uh, artificially modifying the body as an exceptional activity. And this is not as exceptional as we may think. Right. Anyone who had gone to the dentist has maybe uh, <laughs> a crown or an implant or anybody who may have needed, I don't know, an, an implant of hip hip or knee replacement. So we Anybody who goes to the gym. Exactly, exactly, or, or absolutely, that we are always, even without the medical intervention, that's a good example, that even without, uh, depending on medical technology, we are intervening on the body culturally, and, and that's something that the uh, cultural anthropologists like uh, Marcel Mauss noted, like not all cultures swim the same way. We may imagine that swimming would be something universal. We see that the body is overdetermined by culture. And, and, and why not sexuality then? If we swim differently in different cultures, is uh, the gate. People walk differently in different cultures. Why not assuming gender and, and uh, choosing a partner may be different in different uh, contexts, within different languages, within different uh, cultural communities? But if we... If we take this idea as a guideline, this idea that anatomy is not destiny and that one's yes. anatomy does not necessarily determines one's gender, does then that force us to rethink our ideas about individuals who nonetheless insist on transitioning medically and undergoing gender reassignment surgery in order to, be, to feel more themselves? I think what is important in this idea of anatomy is not destiny, that teaches us something universal about how we relate to our, our beings, and our beings are sex, that I think the society we live in requires that we assume a sexual positioning. I, I, I was mentioning earlier on something that has been a controversy quite in the... Uh, open uh, eye because it was on the front covers in, in the newspaper for many months of the controversy about the use of public restrooms mm-hmm. to satisfy the most basic need 
to go to the bathroom. We need in the cultural space, in the social space, when we are in, in public, in a shopping mall or in an airport, we need to uh, make a choice that is dependent upon a gender identification. I think what, uh, on the other hand, is important to, to note is something that, in a way, surprised me as I was uh, uh, completing the book, is that I realized that, you know, I, I, the book has in the title transgender psychoanalysis, and often, initially, uh, when patients consult with what we call gender travel, that in fact, it was not about gender only. Mm. That in fact, like, it happens a lot with psychoanalysis, that somebody comes to, to see you, they call up, they make an appointment with supposedly a problem that brings them to work and, and, and start uh, a psychoanalysis. But in fact, the actual problem is not the problem that they were presenting. Right, the, the presenting up. problem is just a ticket to admission in a way. <laughs> Exactly. And, and often gender is the ticket to admission. Mm. But the problem was, and that was for me a big revelation, was a problem of existence. When you're saying that somebody uh, may need to uh, undergo at times very painstaking uh, physical modifications, at times uh, difficult surgeries, hormone treatment, uh, it may be as a strategy to be in the world. That the big uh, discovery I, I, I was taught by my practice, and, and it, may, it was made clear with the writing of the book, is that it is uh, about uh, an issue of existence. There are questions of life and death. Uh, that patients would come and say, analysis would mention that if I would not have transition, I would be dead. Right. They would have committed suicide. So we are talking about life and death the death decisions. So it's not so much an issue of gender only. The, the admission ticket is gender, but the true issue is uh, about a, a way of being that otherwise they could not be in the world. I, and this is not a small issue that, right. for instance, if we look at the statistics, uh, the, those identify as trans uh, have a percentage of a, a trying suicidal attempts uh, of 41%. I will repeat because it's, it's, it's a shocking figure. 41% of those among the trans uh, population have at least once tried to commit suicide. For the general population, the, the percentage is 4%. Wow. So see, it's exactly wow. That was that's the, the wow factor that why is this? And, and this is, I think, what is an indication that it's a way of finding a form of existence that makes life possible. And this was, I think, the, the, the new contribution of, of, of my most recent research, and this is what I developed in the book, that I discovered that it is more about life and death mm -hmm. than about um, sex, gender, and sexuality. It's, it's so illuminating for you to discover that and, and share it with us. And it makes me think that, you know, as with so many other issues, sometimes the problem lives not inside of the person, but the, the problem sort of comes from outside. It comes from society. And you talk about in the book how it's society that makes us choose one sex or another as our object choice. It makes us choose to be one gender or the other. So if it's society that's freaking out about gender and sexual fluidity, shouldn't we be putting society on the couch rather than transgender individuals? 
yeah, that would be great if only we could. <laughs> a very wide couch, and who would be the analyst would be the question for society. But indeed, I agree with you, and this is something identified early on by Freud when he wrote a text called uh, Discontent in, in Culture or Civilization mm-hmm. and its Discontents, that uh, civilization, culture, society makes us very unhappy, very discontent, and it's a source of neurosis and, and pathology. But uh, indeed, it's uh, this back and forth that I think what psychoanalysis grants for the individual is a possibility uh, to take distance from these social mandates, that it grants what Lacan calls a little bit of freedom, which is not so little if we think that allows you to move away and maybe separate from mm-hmm. If society is freaking out, let society freak out, but maybe you find a way of existing mm-hmm. uh, a little at a distance from that. Or let that, that the society pressure be not so crippling, not so lethal when we are talking about life and death. Let that discontent not kill you. And I'm, I'm not... I'm not using it as a metaphor. Mm-hmm. I think unhappily it becomes a reality. People who may be thinking about taking their own lives because life is impossible. And to make life possible, that's already a wonderful promise that psychoanalysis can grant. And, uh, and, and, and on the other hand, we are seeing, and uh, maybe I, I will take the liberty of feeling a little optimistic, we are seeing a change. Recently, they cover of Times Magazine, I think it was March of 2017, uh, was talking about millennials embracing a, a, a gender identification. Mm-hmm. It's much more open than their parents to those who identify as a gender, queer, by gender, trans. So perhaps that discontent in society, what you call the freaking out, may not be as bad as may have been for previous generations. Let's hope that perhaps society can evolve. And and, and that's one of the the gambles, one interpretation of what I call the democratizing of transgenderism, the fact that we hear more and more in the public eye about the transgender experiences that could perhaps open the way to a more open, tolerating, and less freaking out society. Well, I, I think you're right to be optimistic, and, and I will join you in the optimism. Uh, Patricia, we're almost out of time, and this has been such a enlivening and revitalizing conversation with you. Before we go, though, can you tell us what you're working on next? Uh, what I'm uh, working on next is several projects. One is a, an edited collection that is a spin-off from... Uh, this uh, first book I wrote in 2003 called The Puerto Rican Syndrome, which was a sort of testimony and reflection upon uh, working as a clinician in the Philadelphia barrio and um, not only seeing that psychoanalysis is possible with people who are often considered out of reach from uh, psychoanalytic uh, effects, uh, maybe if we could put it bluntly as I do in that book, is that the poor people can afford to have an unconscious. Mm-hmm. As a result of that book, then uh, I participated in a documentary called Psychoanalysis in El Barrio. And uh, with Christopher Christian, we are putting together an edited collection called Psychoanalysis in the Barrios that uh, 
gives testimony of a lot of clinical work, psychoanalytic clinical work, being done in what is considered, at least in the American context, as non-traditional venues for psychoanalytic practice. Um, I'm also working on another edited collection uh, on psychoanalysis, uh, sex and gender, uh, because I think that still psychoanalysis needs uh, a lot of catch up and, mm -hmm. and uh, we have contributors from many different areas, clinicians, uh, academics, uh, uh, literary theory, because I think a lot of very interesting thinking is being done that needs to be um, known and read. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned your interest in, in culture and, and race. Um, for those of you, for those of our listeners who don't know, I want to remind everyone about the documentary that Patricia is mentioning, Psychoanalysis in El Barrio. I've seen it. I uh, hosted a panel where you talked about it, and it's, it's really yes. a, great, a great film. Um, I've seen it more than once, and I learned something each time that I watch it. And, you know, we didn't get to cover everything in the book, but again, the the book is called Transgender Psychoanalysis, A Lacanian Perspective on Sexual Difference. And I really think anyone who's interested not just in gender studies, but in cultural studies really ought to pick this up. One of the things we didn't get to is your ideas on race and class and psychoanalysis. Um, mm -hmm. But anyone who cares about those issues should really be picking up this book. It's, it's a great contribution to the literature. Uh, Patricia, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's really been great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for your very kind words about the book. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And uh, I hope the, the audience might pick it up. And because I think it's important to, to question how we deal with difference. Could be gender difference, could be uh, social difference, could be race difference. That uh, unhappily we tend to segregate minorities by race, gender, class. And I think psychoanalysis, uh, it could be a very good critical tool to question that if it's faithful to what actually psychoanalysis, uh, psychoanalytic theory proposes and, and also what uh, the clinic teaches mm -hmm. that unhappily mm, is not at times what has been uh, distorted in the in certain interpretations of psychoanalysis. That if we go back to uh, the essence of psychoanalytic practice, we have interesting tools to fight against discrimination, prejudice, and, uh, and segregation, which still is uh, creating discontent in society. And maybe to, to go back to the optimism we share about uh, maybe a healthier society, a less unhappy one at least. When your edited book on psychoanalysis in the Barrios comes out, will you come back on the show to continue our discussion on those ideas? Oh, with great pleasure. Take it as an invitation. Thank you. <laughs> Definitely. Delighted. That, that, would delighted. Be, that would be great. Thank you so much, Patricia. Take care. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is Eugenio Duarte, your host for New Books in Psychology in New York. I hope that you enjoyed the interview that you just listened to. And I also hope that you'll keep letting me know who you would like to hear on the show next or what books in psychology you're reading. To let me know, go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com and click on contact. Until next time, have a great week.